Surprise! <laughs> uh, Scott had to cancel at the last minute this week, so it's a good thing I've been taking improv. <laughs> and speaking of which, I'm starting with a little tidbit from improv. We did an exercise this week. I signed up for another class. I know I told Allison I hadn't yet, and now I have. But this week, we did a, an exercise that was new to me. It was, we got actually a sheet of some simple dialogue, like, yeah, that's right. You know, this like really basic stuff. And then we had to make up a story that fit that dialogue. And then make up a second story that fit that dialogue. Two different narratives for the same thing. It was amazing. You have the same set of, you know, data points of dialogue and the different scenarios that were possible with that. I was kind of proud of one of mine. You can ask it about me about it after the service. But it was pretty amazing how different sets of facts can lend themselves to different scenarios, different interpretations. Narrative is what happens when we take details and we fill in the gaps to create a story about someone or something. This is a normal thing to do. It's how we make sense of our world. Sometimes we get our narratives right, and sometimes we don't. Any of us who've been in a relationship or maybe had a roommate know that a towel on the floor can turn into a whole narrative about that person's deficient character. I'm the messy one, don't worry. John 4, the story of the Samaritan woman. We have the facts in the text that we've all heard before, we've all read before. And then we have some interpretation, a narrative about her. There's a narrative about this woman that has grown up in the church over the years, and you've probably heard it along these lines. This is a loose woman. Jesus challenges her sin, and she repents and turns her life around and is saved. As Lynn Kohick writes, the Samaritan woman has been harshly treated by centuries of commentators who've labeled her a promiscuous vixen bent on seducing unsuspecting men and who therefore becomes a village pariah. However, as some fresh scholarly eyes have landed on this passage, Lynn Kohick being one of them, Karen Reeder being another, as more research has been done about women's lives in the first century, that narrative about the Samaritan woman has been called into question, and it turns out the facts about her are not as obvious as we thought. When we take a closer look at the passage, we discover this is not a story about a sinful woman finding Jesus and repenting, but a perceptive woman encountering Jesus and believing. It seems the church, particularly since the Reformation, has gotten it wrong when it comes to the Samaritan woman. And her story challenges us to examine where we might have gotten it wrong in our narratives as well. So let's talk first about the elephant in the room. What about all of those husbands? What about Jesus saying the man she's living with now isn't her husband? I'm going to borrow from Scott's manuscript here. He, thank you, Scott, for sending it to me. He says this, not once is sexual promiscuity mentioned in this passage, not once. Jesus would not have been afraid to say so had it been so. He does this other places, right? There's no evidence from the first century that dissolute, dissolute women went to water wells alone because other women couldn't associate with them. There's no evidence of that. Now, why would a woman have five men and now a man, a man who is not a husband? Anyone who knows Judaism can think of more than the sexually promiscuous or immoral woman view. Her husbands could have died. Not at all impossible. 
She could have been passed around through the laws of leveret marriage. You might be familiar with this from the Old Testament, where if a man died, his brother took under the care, took his brother's wife under his care. They kind of, remember that there's that whole story about all the brothers that died and the woman? Anyway, not at all impossible. She could have been divorced a time or two, especially if she was a barren woman. This is not at all impossible. She could have been forced to be a concubine of a Roman leader who could not marry a woman of lower class. Slaves could not marry under Roman law. Or more likely, she was now under the care of her brother, her former husband's brother, or an uncle. Such explanations are not only possible, but should be our first instincts. And perhaps more telling against the traditional reading of the woman as immoral are the following. Jesus carries on an extensive back and forth with her, following which she becomes a witness of Jesus, without Jesus ever saying she needed to repent from something. He doesn't tell her, go and sin no more. No one in the village seems to distrust her as a promiscuous woman. Think about this. If you have someone who's a pariah and they go and tell something, you're not going to believe them or listen. She goes back to her village. Everyone believes her and follows her back to Jesus. She has powerful influence in the community. And what seems most likely is that the Samaritan woman was a leader in the community. Back to my draft from Scott's draft. I guess it's not a draft anymore, it's happening. (laughs) Jesus is fully capable of calling out sin, and he does not do that here. Instead, he has an encounter with the Samaritan woman that reminds us of his encounter with the disciple Nathaniel. Remember this? I saw you when you were under the tree. Here, Jesus prophetically reveals something about this woman's life. And she goes, So, if this story isn't a narrative about a sinful, promiscuous woman called to repentance, what is the true narrative here? This is a narrative in direct contrast with Nicodemus, who Ethan preached about last week. Remember, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night versus this woman comes in the blaze of day. Literally, noon. Jesus' words to Nicodemus were, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they've done has been done in the sight of God. She comes in the light. Nicodemus is well-educated. He's a Pharisee. He's elite. She is a Samaritan, an ethnic other, a woman, no mention of her status. Nicodemus says very little and shows very little insight. This woman engages with Jesus. This is an extended back and forth. You could hear how long it was as as Deacon Ethan was reading it. He engages with her. The spiritual perception she shows in their conversation leads her to a direct response of faith and then to mission. Nicodemus stays in the dark. She lives in the light and bears witness to the light. She's a Samaritan. Samaritans fought with Jews about which one of them was the true people of God. The ones who worshipped on Mount Gerizim, that was Samaritans, or the ones in Jerusalem. There were ethnic tensions here. There were big stereotypes about the others. Again, stereotypes are narratives that we tell about people based on their characteristics or ethnicity and all that. There are stereotypes in Samaritan and Jew. This woman meets Jesus at Jacob's well. Remember the story of Jacob and Isaac? in the Old Testament, finding a wife around a well. Whichever woman offers him a drink, he'll marry. 
In the context of John, you can imagine Jesus has come to this well. He's thirsty. A woman approaches him at Jacob's well. This might be a romantic comedy. But she confounds our expectations when she doesn't give Jesus water when he asks. She responds with a question. And then she keeps asking questions. And Jesus zigs and zags and seeing if she'll respond in ways that show insight and engagement. And she does. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? These are questions of identity and territory and worship. Whose narrative is correct? Jesus' response alludes to his identity. Well, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask for living water, which is a spring that flows versus a stagnant pool. She takes him literally, but she's interested. And again, she points back to her own religious questions. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the wealth? This is our territory after all. I love that the woman didn't offer Jesus water. He offered her water. And she wants to know where she can find it. She wants it. Jesus zigzags again and challenges her further. He's not trying to stump her or be purposely obtuse. This is one of my realizations from studying this passage in the short period of time I had to study it. He's not trying to be obtuse. He's trying to draw her along into perceiving who he is, kind of like a spiral. He's inviting her to take a step, 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 this sort of dance, this spiral, drawing her toward perceiving who he is. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. He doesn't engage the religious ethnic debate she's raised. He points to himself. And she's interested. That's a good offer. Give me that water. He zigzags again, but he does so in a way that actually ends up giving her what she's asked for. For this is when he prophetically tells her something about her life. Again, not because he's calling her out for sin, but because like Nathaniel, he's calling her into discipleship and greater understanding of who he is. She responds, oh, I can see you're a prophet. And then she zigzags, oh, I've got a prophet in front of me. Back to the debate about who the true people of God are. Her amazing initiative with Jesus throughout this encounter is rewarded. You're a prophet? Here's my burning question. Gerizim or Jerusalem? This well is right next to Gerizim. So you can, Mount, Mount Gerizim, you can imagine her pointing. Gerizim or Jerusalem? And Jesus says, neither. Salvation is from the Jews. Samaritans, you got some things wrong. But the time is coming and has now come when it is no longer about a location for worship. It's no longer about Gerizim versus Jerusalem, but worship in spirit and truth. That whole Jew, Samaritan, Gentile worship location debate is irrelevant now. And her ears perk up. Perk up. This is Messiah talk. So she brings up some messianic expectations. She introduces that in the conversation. When Messiah comes, I know he'll explain it all. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Or more literally, I am the one speaking to you. Jesus reveals himself to her directly. And she receives the first I am statement in John. I want to know what happens next between them, but then the disciples return. 
and they totally ignore her. They don't speak to her. They don't even acknowledge her. They don't even ask about her. Our narratives about people make a big difference in how we treat them. So they sit there puzzling about this thing about food. What does Jesus mean about his food being the will of the Father? Did someone actually bring him food? But what Jesus said is, I just did the will of the Father, and it's what I live for. There is a new disciple. We don't get any words of how the woman responds, but we sure see it in her actions. While the disciples are sitting there puzzling and ignoring her, in the meantime, she's left her water jar and run back to her town and started telling everybody. And she has enough credibility and influence in the town that her testimony about Jesus leads a bunch of Samaritans to come back with her and meet Jesus, and then even more to become believers. Salvation has come to the Samaritans today. Jesus recognized this woman's intelligence, her spiritual perception, and he invited her to become his co-laborer in the harvest. That is the narrative that Jesus tells about her. Our narratives matter. The disciples had a narrative, a story about the Samaritan woman, woman that led them to ignore her entirely. The townspeople had a narrative about her that meant that when she spoke, they listened. Interpreters and commentators throughout the years have had a narrative about this woman that degraded her. Jesus' narrative about her honored her agency and her gifts, and it bore fruit in her life and in the lives of others. The stories we tell matter. This story invites us to reflect on the narratives that we tell about ourselves, about other people, and about God. What narratives do I tell myself about myself? Do I have a narrative of shame or of worth? A narrative of deficiency or potential? a narrative of perfection, or of beloved humanity. Part of the work of maturity, of growing into emotional and spiritual maturity, is that work of undoing the false narratives inside each of us, our true self versus our false self, as it's been said. A true narrative about ourselves always starts with God's great love for us, that we are made in his image. Jesus sees our faults, he sees the false things we believe, and he sees our gifts and our potential. Scott, if he had been here today, would have said, Jesus knows that each of us is capable of drawing others to Jesus with whatever gifts the Spirit has given to us. Each of us is capable of that. Do we believe it? Do we see ourselves as the Lord sees us? What narratives do I tell about others? Others can be those different than us in all the categories, class, gender, race, ethnicity, nationality, political party, sexual orientation, fans of rival sports teams. We have narratives about those who are different than us. Are these narratives true? Are they charitable? As an English major from back in the day, one of the classes I took on literary theory, we studied, I think I've probably mentioned it before, uh, Russian, uh, criticist is not a word, right? Literary theorist named Mikhail Bakhtin. 
who talked about the hermeneutics of love, interpreting through the lens of love. We're called to be loving in our interpretation of other people's words, even when we read a book. How much more when we're face-to-face with a brother or sister? I want to say I don't think that we have done this well in this season in our church's life, interpreting one another with love. We have told narratives about others that have harmed. We have not given others the benefit of the doubt far too often. It's breaking my heart right now. In this season of Lent, I invite us to prayerfully challenge the narratives and assumptions that we've constructed about whoever the other was in our church in this season. To think with curiosity, what might I be missing? Can you help me understand? What is my hurt underneath my blame and my anger? What are my needs? What are their needs? I've been thinking a lot about data sets. (laughs) In terms of only the Lord has the full data set about me and about you. And far too often, I think I have the data set on other people. The narrative. And I do not. What does it look like for me to offer to the Lord Refine my data set. This is the weirdest analogy I've ever used. It's not in my notes. Lord, refine my data set (laughs) about other people. Oh, show me where I failed to love. Show me where I've gotten it wrong. We cannot be a church that holds harmful narratives about one another. The Spirit can undo those in the Spirit's time. He longs to. Took a long, long time for this Samaritan woman's story to begin to be redeemed. The Lord does that. The Lord sees and the Lord redeems our narratives. (laughs) Refine my data set. It's my new breath prayer. (laughs) And then, what narratives do I tell about God? Which is related to both of the others, isn't it? This Exodus passage is uh, such an interesting passage. I was looking at it earlier this week before I knew I would be preaching. But this grumbling against Moses was really a grumbling against God. Look at how Psalm 121 interprets it. Right before Exodus, where we pick up today, God has just rescued them from Egypt and provided them manna and quail for food. And they needed water. The need was real. Our needs are real and our needs matter. What we do with them, that's sometimes where we get into trouble. Instead of asking God for water and trusting, they complain and they quarrel. Their need is real. They miss out on the chance to trust who God is, and I'm pretty sure I've done that, probably even this week. They lose sight of who God is and how he's already proven himself to them. And we all do that. I'm sure that we've done that in this season. We need to rehearse true narratives about God to ourselves and to one another. The ways that God has shown himself faithful. The way that he has already provided. 
that he delights in the truth and in justice and in tenderness and opposes oppression of every kind, that he delights in us, that he loves us, that he sees the full data set of who we are and loves us beyond what we can imagine, that he has redeemed us, that when we were still his enemies, he died for us. He didn't wait for us to be good with him before he died. He would be still waiting. What narratives do I tell? Are they true? Are they loving? Do they bear good fruit? If my narratives produce, never mind, I'm not gonna say that. Do they bear good fruit? These are good questions for Lent and for this season of our church's life, and asking them is part of how we seek to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment to simply reflect. I'm lamenting today. Maybe you are too. So that's what I'm praying right now. It's just naming the brokenness that I hate, that I can't fix, as well as the good things I know the Lord can do here and will do here. So the end of my, uh, my conclusion today simply says pray. <laughs> I invite you to speak your prayers aloud or in your hearts, whether it's lament, whether it's thanks, whatever it is. Be honest before the Lord and tender. The Lord does not despise a broken and contrite heart. Create that heart in us, O Lord, we pray. Father, I lament the times that I have spoken about people instead of to people. I repent. I lament. my own quickness to judge, the ways my own needs have spilled out. The ways I lost touch with your abundance for me and for us. I repent. Forgive me, Lord, for being quick to work and slow to pray. Lord, you are the one who binds up our wounds. You are the one who brings light out of darkness. You are the one in whom unity and peace and forgiveness is found. As we've confessed, Lord, forgive us in your mercy and your compassion. We thank you that in you there is hope. Tell a new story here, we pray. And in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.